Hello, everybody. I'm Harrison. And I'm Rachel. This week, we're sharing Edison's birth story. So stay tuned and join us on our journey to meet Meet Baby Baby H. H. When you get to the end of pregnancy, especially once you've reached full term at 37 weeks, time becomes a really weird phenomenon. You kind of feel like the baby could come any day or it could still be another three to four weeks, which is really mentally draining. Once you reach full term, doctors don't really waste any time when it comes to delivering the baby, especially if there's any sort of medical concern because things can go wrong very quickly towards the end of pregnancy. Today, we are going to talk about the events leading up to Edison's labor and birth story. This podcast is going to be pretty straightforward as far as the terms that we use to explain this process. So if any of that makes you uncomfortable, you might want to check out now. Edison was born on August 26, 2022 at 37 weeks and five days gestation. It was definitely a very eventful 24 hours of labor, but we are happy that our baby boy made it here safely. Edison was born on a Friday night, and Monday of that week was my 37-week doctor's appointment. My blood pressure had already started rising the past few weeks through the pregnancy, and it was something that we were just keeping an eye on. They also tested my urine at this appointment and did some blood work to check for preeclampsia markers because, like we said, once you get to 37 weeks, doctors do not mess around with any kind of concern with blood pressure or preeclampsia. We kind of mentioned it in our trying to induce labor episode, but at 37 weeks, that's when the doctors consider your baby to be full term. There's not a huge question anymore about whether your baby's lungs are developed, and it's highly likely that if your baby is born at 37 weeks, you're not even going to have to spend time in the NICU. The OB checked at this appointment and said that I was not dilated at all, but the baby's head was very low. And so she explained that... At this point, she wanted me to come back in two days and get my blood pressure checked again. And their protocol is that if you have two high blood pressure readings in the office, then they want to move forward with inducing. So that Wednesday, I came back for another blood pressure check, which was very high. The nurse didn't even tell me what it was. She just said, girl, what is going on? And so... They checked me again, and in those two days, I had dilated to one centimeter, which made me a good candidate to be induced. So we went ahead and scheduled it for that next evening, Thursday at 9 p.m. We decided not to tell our families about the induction until a few hours before it was time to leave because we have heard a lot of stories about people's inductions getting pushed back, especially around these birth months. We've heard that August, September, July are the really, really busy birth months, and hospitals can be very overwhelmed. So if they don't have a room available, they're not going to take you for your induction. Fortunately enough for us, because we had a higher reason to be induced than just we're getting closer to the end, they wanted to make sure that we were a priority. We did have to switch hospitals in order to get the induction done, but that wasn't a huge concern for us. We talked a lot about the induction since that appointment until we actually ended up going to the hospital. And 
There's definitely a lot of pros and cons when it comes to induction versus a more natural labor. And it's not really something that you get to choose in a lot of cases. But for us, one of the best things about being induced was we knew when we were going to the hospital and it actually gave us time to get everything ready for the house. It gave us time to pack a little bit better. And it also gave me time at work to make sure that everything was kind of tied together and I was ready to leave for a little while before it just happened. One of the cons of being induced is you spend that entire time between scheduling the induction and actually going in there just worrying about all of these little things. You've had nine months to prep for this baby to arrive, and as you get closer and closer to the end, you start to feel like you're more and more ready, but there's just something about having a hard set time of like, I know that this time is going to be the last time I leave the house before I have my kid that just is really nerve-wracking. I thought that Thursday was going to be the absolute worst day of my life, that it was just going to drag on forever. But we actually had a ton of things that we needed to get done. We were going to the store, we were cleaning the house, packing bags. And so there was never a moment to just sit and think about all the things that could go wrong. It really was just like, okay, this is happening. Let's make sure that we're ready for it. Part of the reason that we made sure we were doing all of this stuff that I guess didn't really have to happen is we wanted to make sure that when we got to the hospital, we actually were tired. We're very guilty of taking naps like 5 or 5.30 shortly after I get home, and we really didn't want to do this because we didn't want to be up the whole night of the induction because they intentionally schedule inductions later with the idea that you can get there, they can get the process started, and then you can sleep through most of it. So we ended up calling our families around 4 or 5 o'clock that day and just letting them know that we were going in that night. It could still be pushed back, so we didn't want a ton of people to know. But it did not get pushed back, and so we ended up going into the hospital at 9 o'clock. When we arrived at the hospital at 9 o'clock, it was our very first time at the hospital. Even though we've taken a couple hospital trips, we did have to switch hospitals, so we didn't know the layout of this one very well. So it took us a little bit of time to find where we were supposed to go. And when we finally reached our destination, it was about an hour before they had a room ready for us. So they took us back to our room at 10 p.m. Once we got all checked in, they started asking me a ton of questions about the pregnancy and just my birth preferences and kind of explained how they were going to start the induction process. They also gave me an IV at this time, which I absolutely hated. It was something that I was really dreading the entire time just leading up to like the whole birth process. Like the thing I was fearing the most was this IV. And so Doing that right at the beginning was kind of terrifying. After they put the IV in, Rachel actually said, that's going to be the worst thing the whole entire time. The IV is just going to be the absolute worst. And it definitely took her a little bit of time to get used to it. But I think looking back on it, I think that she was very much wrong. The IV was not the worst part. People thought I was crazy because I asked if they could 
wrap the IV so that I wouldn't see it. So I had this like giant bandage all the way up my arm. And every time there was like a shift change, the nurses were like, what happened there? And I was like, I just don't want to look at it. I also think one of the best things about having Rachel wrap it up was that anytime she moved, the IV probably felt a little bit more secure because we were there for quite a while and Rachel did move around quite a bit with that IV on and there's a lot of wires and stuff going on. And if you've ever been around like a computer or some other station where there's tons and tons of wires, it's really easy just to get them all tangled up and pull. And you definitely don't want that when there's something in your arm. So after about an hour of all the questions and paperwork, it was time to start the induction. And since I was already one centimeter dilated, they didn't need to do any sort of medication to start the opening of the cervix. And we just started off with a folly balloon, which is a catheter that they put into your cervix. They fill it with a saline solution on the top side, and it kind of puts this mechanical pressure to dilate your cervix a little bit and get the process started. For me, one of the things that was most confusing about this is they kept referring to it as a catheter, and that's not really the function that it serves in this case. The reason that they refer to it as a catheter is it's the exact same process. So it's inflated a little bit more than they would for a normal catheter, but it's the exact same process. And the idea is that this balloon will sit on the end of the cervix and kind of slowly force the cervix open. Inserting this catheter was the most painful part, in my opinion, of the entire labor. The nurse kept mentioning that my legs were really strong because I was really resistant to it. She kept saying, like, just relax, like, relax your muscles and all these things. And I just couldn't. It really hurt. At the very beginning, the nurse that was putting the folly balloon in said, this is probably going to be a little bit uncomfortable because I'm sticking a one centimeter object into a one centimeter hole. So if you've ever like driven a nail, that's kind of how I imagine this going. It does not sound comfortable in any way. And we hadn't been there long enough for Rachel to have any sort of painkiller to deal with this. Once they got it inserted, the cramping started right away, and they also started me on Pitocin at a level two. They explained that this balloon could either fall out on its own, or after 12 hours, they would release the saline solution and remove it um, because it failed to work. Pitocin is basically the artificial version of oxytocin. The idea of being on Pitocin is to try and give Rachel's body contractions so that her cervix will start to dilate and the medicine is going to help with that. They started her on two and it can go all the way up to 40 throughout the entire labor process. The doctor said that overnight, they didn't want to go above 10 because they don't want the labor process to be going so fast that it's harmful to Rachel. And Rachel was really, really responsive to the Pitocin. And throughout the entire labor and delivery, she never got above 10. At this time, they also gave me a sleeping pill that did absolutely nothing. So around midnight, they decided that they would up the Pitocin to a four. And going to the bathroom during this time was a very interesting experience because I had 
the heart monitor on Edison. I had a contraction monitor. I had my IV. I had the folly balloon. And so there were just things hanging off of me everywhere. And anytime I needed to pee, which is quite often during pregnancy, Harrison had to unplug the monitors. We had to unplug the IV and then just getting out of bed and this whole discomfort because I have something hanging out of me. It's just a process. One of the additional pains for Rachel going to the bathroom was that Edison was really, really low. So where his heart monitor needed to be was like very, very sensitive. So whenever she would move around, the heart monitor would kind of fall off of him. So when she would get all plugged in and laying back in bed, the nurse would come in and be like, well, we can't see him on any of our monitors, so they'd have to reposition it. So basically, every like 20 to 30 minutes when Rachel would get up to go pee, the nurse would have to come in and readjust the monitor. At 1 a.m., they upped my Pitocin again to a 6. And after a while of being on a 6, I was having too many contractions. They didn't want me to have more than 5 contractions in 10 minutes because that would stress out Edison. And so they decided to bump me back down to a 4. And at that time, they also gave me a narcotic to kind of take the edge off of the pain and I got a little nap in. Napping in the hospital was exactly like everybody says it is. It was not really the most comfortable and people come in all the time to check on you. So when you nap, you don't get these very long stretches. They're very short little bursts. We really appreciated that our nurses were very aware of what was going on and they would open up the door and see that Rachel was asleep and if it wasn't something that absolutely had to happen right then, they were just going to walk away. And we were really appreciative of that. When they gave me that pain med through the IV, they explained that I could have it after an hour up to three times. And if I needed it three times, then at that point they would recommend that I get the epidural because that meant that the pain was strong enough that I needed a constant pain relief. After about two hours of being on that pain med, Rachel needed it again, and so they were able to give her a second dose through the IV, and Rachel took another nap. And that was pretty much the night for us. At 7.15, there was a shift change, and we got to meet our new nurse who came bursting in with tons of energy, and she checked the folly balloon, gave it a little tug, and it came right out which meant that I was three to four centimeters dilated. A little tug is definitely underselling how she did this. This gal came in and we really thought she had just finished her morning coffee. She was raring and ready to go. She's like, we got a baby to deliver. She's like, oh, I'm going to check on this. She gave it a tiny tug. And then she just says, oh, wow, it's pretty loose and yanked that thing. And it was very aggressive and very much a surprise to me. <laughs> But honestly, the pulling out process was not as painful as putting it in. It felt very similar to taking out a dry tampon. And so she checked my cervix and I was three and a half centimeters and 70% effaced. So after the folly balloon had come out, basically the process was to sit around and just wait and let Rachel's body contract as much as possible until it got a little bit further and they decided to break Rachel's water. And this time, we really just kind of chilled, 
got ready for the day as much as you really can. I think I just like repacked up our night stuff and that was really it and just hung out. Rachel also was able to move around a little bit. So they got an exercise ball out that Rachel tried for a little while and it was kind of awful, so we didn't use it very much. And then at 9.15, they came in and said it was time to break Rachel's water. After they broke my water, which was a very weird experience, everyone kind of says it's just this uncontrollable, like, peeing yourself, like a ton of water coming out of you. And I was really surprised by how much water it was. Like it just did not stop. Like there was this big gush, but then every time I would move for like the next hour or so, more water came out. They also put this internal contraction monitor on Edison. Uh, Because I was responding to the Pitocin really well, they wanted to get a more accurate reading on how the contractions were affecting him. This internal monitor was very interesting for us because... In these couple of visits we've had at the hospital, we have noticed on the monitors these taco numbers that are significant and they can tell you how strong a contraction is. But we've noticed that depending on where the monitor sits, the number is vastly different. For most of this process, while we were in the hospital being induced, Rachel's taco number never really went above 20 and they say that above 40 is an active labor. But when they put this internal monitor in, it immediately spiked up to 40. So we think that the external monitor, they can just see that there's a change and that's how they know that there's a contraction, but the number is not really significant until this internal monitor is placed. And it's not something that everyone needs either. I think just because my body was just like, oh, here's Pitocin, let's have a million contractions. And they wanted me to have contractions, but it was also a little too much for comfort. They really wanted to keep an eye on Edison, which we appreciated. So Harrison and I decided to play phase 10 at this time because what else are you going to do? And the nurse also gave me some lemonade popsicles, which I was super grateful for after going through the night of not eating, not having any snacks. And when the nurse brought me my second round of popsicles, she was laughing at us because we were just sitting there playing cards. And she was like, yeah, I can tell you need upped on your Pitocin again. So she took it up a notch because I was a little too comfortable for being in labor. We probably only made it through three quarters of this game of phase 10, which phase 10 is actually kind of a longer game. So that's actually fairly far, but we stopped in the middle. And the next time the nurse came in, she was like, yeah, Not really surprised. Most people that come in and play a game, they don't make it through. And even though we didn't make it all the way through the game, I think that if we were to do the whole process again, I still would have brought cards or something else to play because it's just something else to take your mind off of everything. So at this point, the contractions were starting to get painful for the first time. And I was listening to music and sitting on the edge of my bed because the exercise ball was like way too low to the ground and just trying to keep my mind off of things. And I labored like this for about an hour and I have a very low pain tolerance. I feel like I was tolerating it fine. I wasn't like screaming or anything. And I had told Harrison 
way before that I did not want to be that person that just could not control the sounds I was making of like growling or screaming. Like I just didn't want that experience. And that never happened. I stayed very calm. I just breathed through, listened to my music, rocked back and forth and tried to keep my mind off of it as much as possible. But after an hour or so of that, I decided that we should start the epidural process because I knew that I would be dilated enough that it wasn't going to affect the rest of the process. Something that I felt was very weird about this entire induction process is I never really felt like I knew what the next step was unless we explicitly asked the nurses. And I really think that that comes from the fact that the nurses and doctors, they do this every single day, sometimes more than once in a day. And they're very familiar with this process and they know what's coming next. And we on every single step of the way had to ask like, so when does the next thing happen? And I was kind of waiting for someone to come in and say, well, it's time to get the epidural. But Rachel had to like specifically request the epidural. Before you get the epidural, they have to give you a whole bag of fluid because the medicine can kind of spike your blood pressure and the fluid will hopefully offset that spike. So after Rachel requested the epidural, they gave this entire bag of fluid and that was about enough time that it took for the anesthesiologist to come to the room. So the anesthesiologist then talks through everything with the epidural, they'll go through some of the risks and Rachel had to sign off on this form. This whole process was very new to me. I have not spent a lot of time looking at things regarding the epidural or really a whole lot of the labor and delivery process, but I think they very wisely positioned Rachel in the room so that her back was to the door so that she could not see any of the stuff that the anesthesiologist was getting out for the epidural. And the reason I think that this was a very good move is because I saw the anesthesiologist get everything out. And to see the needle, to see all this other stuff, it was just something I was not really prepared for. Something I thought was particularly interesting is there's basically like this scrub that they put on Rachel's back before they put it in that is intentionally colored very dark red. And so you know that this is probably like a little bit of a bloody process and they're doing this sort of thing just so it doesn't freak everybody out. And from the moment they started this whole thing, the nurses just told me, they said, you can be in the room for this, but you have got to sit down. And they basically confined me to a chair. And that's going to happen to anybody else that's in the room. So I had the anesthesiologist on the backside of me, and then the nurse was basically holding me hunched over on the front side. And she had a very tight grip on my arms and my side just to make sure that I was not going to move at all because they're sticking this thing into your spine. And so it's just very important that it's done correctly. Part of the reason that the nurse is putting so much weight on Rachel is that as they put the epidural in, they actually want you to feel this like jolt in your legs so that they know they've hit the right nerve to start basically blocking it so that you don't feel any pain there. And when that happens, it kind of gives you a little bit of a shake, but they don't want it to be this big thing that causes an issue with the placement of the needle. So the nurse is there to hold you in place. 
And after everything was all placed, they stuck around for about 20 minutes to monitor my blood pressure. And then they put my catheter in because once you have the epidural, you're pretty much confined to your bed for the rest of your labor. When they give you the epidural, it slowly releases pain medication the entire time you're on it. And the anesthesiologist locks this little box up and they actually leave the room so they don't have to stick around anymore. But there is a button attached to that box that you can push that basically increases the amount of that medicine that's released for a short period of time so that you can increase the amount of medicine you're getting to hopefully relieve more pain. And while the nurse said that there are a lot of people out there that just push this button over and over again because they just want to be totally numb, we definitely tried to avoid this process. So they got me positioned on my left side and put a peanut ball in between my legs, which is just an optimal position that you can be in while you're stationary to help the cervix continue dilating. And they upped my Pitocin to an eight and I took a nap, which is what I wanted to do. Another reason they had Rachel lay on her side is that the epidural does work with gravity as well. So they want to put you on a side to get more of the pain medication going to that side of your leg. And then in a little bit, they're going to switch you so that it kind of balances itself out. And that's just kind of like to get the process going. So after about an hour of being on the one side, they flipped Rachel over, put her in the exact same position on the other side, and she was able to take another nap. So about two hours after I got the epidural, I was seven to eight centimeters dilated. And they kept changing my positions. It probably happened three or four times throughout that four hours. And around three o'clock, they decided to lower my Pitocin back down to an eight because, again, my contractions were getting very frequent and very strong. We kind of stayed in this point for a little bit of time, and Rachel didn't really want to take a nap. We just kind of sat there and talked for a little bit. Um, it was very nice. The bed like moves into a million positions. So Rachel was able to lower the feet, put her back up. And um, it kind of was like she's sitting on this like giant throne. And we kind of stayed like that for a little while until about 4 p.m. when they came and checked Rachel again and repositioned her. Right after the nurse left, I started to not feel so good. And I asked Harrison if he could find one of those puke bags. Like I knew they had to have one in the room and I just felt like I was going to throw up. And he could not find one in time. And so I puked all over myself and my bed. <laughs> I felt so bad because when we got there in the middle of the night, we just kind of went through the whole room. We looked through everything because... It's your room, and I wanted to know where things are, like figure out where the light switches are, figure out, you know, like where extra pillows, things like that. And one of the things that didn't even occur to me to look for were these little puke bags. And they're in this little nurse's station that does say nurses only, but it's not like it was locked or anything. But I couldn't find one fast enough. And then Rachel puked all over herself in the bed. And of course, she can't move. So it's very difficult to get all of this cleaned up. And I just felt horrible. After they got everything cleaned up, they checked my cervix and I was at 10 centimeters, but they said there was a little bit of a lip on the right side. And so they wanted to give it a little bit more time. 
And I also lowered my Pitocin again back down to a four. At this point, they started explaining to us what was going to happen next. So we just needed to wait for that little lip to go a little bit further. And then they were going to do what they call laboring down, which essentially means they're going to sit around a little bit longer before they decide to push, hoping that the baby will move even further down so that maybe you don't have to push the baby as far. So at five o'clock, they came in and checked and that lip was gone. I was fully dilated and Edison was at a zero station, which means he was exactly at the cervical opening. And they also lowered my Pitocin again down to one. And they sat me upright so that I could start the laboring down process. And through that next hour, Edison went from a zero station to a one station, which means he had descended even further into the birth canal. Part of the decision on putting the Pitocin down to one was because Rachel's body was starting to do everything on its own, so she didn't really need this anymore. But the nurse decided to put it at one instead of zero because it's this large process if they stop the Pitocin to completely restart it. And so they wanted to just leave it at one so that they didn't have to go through all of that again. So by 6.30, my midwife had arrived at the hospital and it was time to start pushing. And things started off going really well. Honestly, the process was very chill, like not at all what you expect in the movies. There's a lot of downtime from my experience. Like you just, your contraction comes, they guide you through the pushing, and then you just sit there. And of course I had the epidural, so I wasn't in pain. I was just chilling. We were talking about our lives and just random little things with the nurses. And it was a really pleasant time. Yeah, it was way more relaxed than we thought it was going to be. We were fully expecting like a team of people to walk in and there'd just be like the room was absolutely full for this entire time. But it was just the midwife and the main nurse that had seen us throughout most of the day. And basically, we all just sat there and stared at the contraction monitor and waited for it to be going up. And it's not like it was that complicated. I could stand there and, I mean, Rachel was looking at it too, and we both knew, We're like, okay, well, it's time to push for this. And then anytime Rachel had a major contraction, they basically had Rachel do three pushes that were 10 counts long, and the midwife counted the whole time. So we didn't have to worry about it at all. The nurse and the midwife kept making comments about how well I was pushing Edison down. And the nurse even said, yeah, there's no way this is going to take longer than two hours. Like he is moving really fast. But after an hour and a half, the midwife started noticing that Edison was stuck. And by this point, she could see his head without having to do any kind of stretching or anything. He was very close, but he was very stuck. And so we started to try some different ways of pushing by bringing my knees together to like open my hips in a different way or um, using a sheet and Harrison would be pulling on the other end of the sheet, like doing a tug of war type of thing. Or they had these like pull-up bars in the bed and just all these different methods. And we did that for about another hour and he was still just stuck. It was kind of crazy because 
I just was along the lines of I wasn't going to look. It just wasn't something I was particularly interested in watching. But we did this method of pushing called like the sheet pole. And we did it for a very long time where they basically get an extra bed sheet, roll it up, and it is just a tug of war between Rachel and I. And I think that it helped a lot. I think that Rachel was able to get a lot of really strong pushes from it. But in that process, it also meant that I could see what was going on. And it actually was very crazy to be able to watch. And an hour and a half into pushing, when we first tried this pulling the sheet method, I could actually see the top of Edison's head. And you could see like a little bit of black hair. And it was just a very interesting moment. And it's crazy to think that Rachel still pushed for another hour and a half and you could see his head that early on. Looking back, we've definitely reflected and have realized that lowering the Pitocin down was not the best idea because they did end up upping it towards the end and I could feel my body helping me push him out a lot more. And so my uterus had kind of stopped pushing him out at this point and we were relying 100% on my own strength pushing him out and then also the fact that he was just turned a little weird, like his chin was tucked the wrong way and that was kind of working against us. And so it's protocol to not be pushing for more than four hours because it puts a lot of stress on the baby. And so after two and a half hours, they decided to call in the OB that was on call to kind of evaluate because the midwives at our practice can do deliveries, but they can't make those kind of calls on special circumstances. We waited a little while for the doctor to come and Rachel continued to push throughout that entire process. And one of the things that we were very appreciative while Rachel was pushing is that the way her epidural was working, it made it so that Rachel couldn't feel any pain, but she was able to feel what she was doing and feel what her body was doing. And for a lot of people, that's not their experience with the epidural. For lots, it's just like from their belly button down, they can't feel a thing. And so you have no clue whether you're pushing right or not. But Rachel was actually able to tell. And the doctors were able to say a lot of like, yeah, that's exactly what you need to keep doing to kind of guide Rachel. So once the OB arrived, we were about three hours in and she took 15 to 20 minutes and pushed with us to kind of evaluate where Edison's at, where I'm at and see how we could move forward. And she basically explained that he is just tucked in there the wrong way. And she could tell that like his heart rate was kind of starting to have some dips during contractions, which was pretty concerning to us. And so she gave us two options, which was a vacuum assisted delivery or a C-section. And with the vacuum, it can only be attempted a couple times before they have to just move on to a C-section anyway. We have not spent a lot of time looking into all of the possible ways that labor and delivery could go because there's so many different routes and we know that no matter how we walked into that room, the doctors are more prepared for that than we are. And whatever questions we have, they're going to answer it in the moment. So we're kind of leaving it up to them. 
We have heard about both vacuum deliveries and C-sections, but we're definitely not very familiar with a vacuum delivery. So even though the sound of a vacuum delivery makes it sound like they're hooking up a vacuum to your baby and just like pulling them out like with a sweeper, that is 100% not the truth at all. It's just like this little tiny suction cup that they put on your baby's head. And then while the mom pushes, they kind of guide the baby's head and they're allowed to pull a little bit, but there's tons of pressure gauges and a lot of people watching to make sure the doctor doesn't go over the limits that they're allowed to that are considered safe. And they only can do this a couple of times. And if it all fails, then you're going to end up with a C-section either way. So we asked about the risk of like disabilities from that type of delivery or any kind of injury that I would have. Like, you know, I've heard so many horror stories. And so we just wanted to make sure like I was actually leaning towards a C-section because one, I had been pushing for three hours at this point. I was feeling very defeated. I also was feeling like he was very far back because at this point, I was trying to ask Harrison, like, how close is he? Because I couldn't see it. But Harrison didn't want to tell me something that wasn't really true. And I also didn't really want to ask the doctors because they don't like giving you answers of like, oh, you're this close because it could be wrong. Basically, what was happening whenever Rachel was pushing is she was being very effective and moving Edison a lot. And every time she pushed, his head would get very close to getting past that pelvic bone that he needs to get through before he can come all the way out. But whenever Rachel would stop pushing in between contractions, it basically would just go right back to where it was before. So even though Rachel was doing a lot in the pushes, she just needed to go a little bit further for a little bit longer and he might have gone through. But when we talk to them about why this happens, the biggest reason is your baby has to tuck their chin in order to fit through the birth canal and make it easier for the mom to push. And he just wasn't doing it. And because of that, that's why he's backing out over and over and over again. And he basically just needed a little bit of extra help. And they explained it to us exactly that way that he was stuck on my pelvic bone. And when I heard that, it just sounds like farther back than what he was. And so before we actually made our decision, they decided to bring a mirror out for me so that I could see how close he was. And as soon as they brought the mirror up, I was like, holy crap, like he's right there. And so that kind of changed my mind a little bit about going straight to a C-section. Either way, it's still a very nerve-wracking decision. It's really hard to make in the moment because you're making a decision that could have a huge impact on your child's life and you have no clue what's going to happen. And you hear a lot more about C-sections. So you think, oh yeah, that must be the better option. And it was just a really difficult decision because at the end of the day, you really want both mom and baby to be safe. And we had a hard time with this decision and we basically just asked that everybody leave the room. We stopped labor and delivery for like 10 minutes and they got Rachel like out of the stirrups and all the stuff and we're able to just sit there and talk about it for a minute. I definitely had a breakdown 
they presented the options to us and said, well, just keep pushing. Just think about it. We have a couple minutes to decide. And I just started bawling like out of nowhere. And so they left us alone. And that honestly is what we needed was just to be alone to talk about it. What we ultimately ended up deciding was that a C-section has way more risks for Rachel, whereas the vacuum delivery has way more risks for Edison. But the risks that come with the vacuum delivery only happen if he is successfully delivered that way. If he's not, like if it fails and we end up going to a C-section, a lot of those like risks or potential issues that could come they still aren't a thing. So we decided we'd go ahead and do the vacuum delivery. And if it didn't work, just know that it was okay that we go to a C-section and we're not really any worse off. The biggest reason to not go for a C-section is Rachel had just been pushing for four hours, doing a huge ab workout, and her abs had to be exhausted. And then they're going to do a C-section and cut through all of this. It just sounds like an absolute nightmare and the recovery process sounds way way worse yeah so technically i was in the pushing stage for four hours but a lot of that last hour was talking with the doctor talking with harrison and then we had to sit around and wait they got the room all set up because it was considered a procedure they had to have the NICU team there. They had to have all these specialists. But there was also an emergency C-section going on on our floor that they had to wait for that team to be available in case the vacuum was not successful. We would have to go into a C-section immediately. And so there was about 30 minutes of just waiting for these people to arrive in our room. The 30 minutes of waiting was difficult, but it's probably the best thing for Edison because in that 30 minutes of waiting, they made the decision to go ahead and up the Pitocin again. And Rachel was able to feel her body helping with these contractions a lot more. And in that 30 minutes, Rachel was able to make a lot of progress so that when it came to the vacuum, they really didn't have to do any pulling at all. It was more of a guiding Edison's head. So our setup for this procedure was that I had a nurse on my right side. I had a NICU specialist on my left side that was constantly readjusting the heart rate monitor on Edison because he was getting really low. It was hard to keep monitoring his heart rate. And then um, I had the OB and the midwife were obviously down there doing the delivery. And then poor Harrison was just kind of like shoved off to the side, but he was also doing the sheet pole thing with me. So we decided that we were going to try that again. And then in the back corner, we had like the NICU team. And so everything was all set up and they were like, okay, at the next contraction, we're putting this thing on his head and we're going to try to get this baby out. They also had to put um, some oxygen on me because, you know, Edison was kind of getting to a scary point. And so there were a couple of times they had to have me stop and just like really breathe in all that oxygen so that it would get to Edison and his heart rate would go back up again. 
This is where it got a lot more stressful because it went from three to four people in the room to by the end of it, there probably were 15 people in this very tiny room. And you're just nervous about this thing that's about to happen. But Rachel had a lot of really good pushes. So I was able to actually watch them put the vacuum on him. And the little suction cup thing is probably about two inches thick. And after it was on his head, probably like an inch of it was hanging out still. So he really did not need to come that much further. They just needed to kind of move his head a little bit so that he could pop through. So it was pretty much that first contraction, two pushes, and he was out. They never needed to retry the vacuum or anything, and the vacuum was a super smooth sailing process. So he was born at 10.52 p.m. after almost exactly 24 hours of labor, and he was 7 pounds, 5 ounces, and 19 inches long. I am still at the point where I don't know what to think or feel about this birth experience. It was a little bit traumatic, but also we're all still here and we're safe, which is a huge blessing. And we're just so happy to be at home and settled in with our little guy. Next time, we're going to talk about the rest of our hospital stay after Edison was born. Thanks for joining us. See you next time. 